1: New season out on Spotify soon. The Branch Davidians, David Koresh, Waco. Three names made infamous by a 1992 hostage situation that shocked the nation. If you enjoy these episodes on The Siege at Waco, follow the series Hostage today. There you'll find electrifying crime stories culminating in intense life-or-death negotiations. Episodes of Hostage are all free and only available on Spotify.
3: This episode features discussion of child abuse, sexual trauma, suicide, and extreme violence that some people may find offensive. Listener discretion is advised, especially for children under 13. Robert Rodriguez was an agent for the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms. He was also deep undercover as a member of the most notorious cult in Texas, the Branch Davidians of Waco.
1: On February 28, 1993, Robert paced the chapel in the Mount Carmel compound as cult leader David Koresh, a self-anointed prophet, darted from window to window.
3: Koresh scanned the desert for movement. He kept muttering, they're coming, Robert, they're coming.
1: Robert's heart skipped a beat. The ATF had scheduled a raid for that morning. They planned to storm the compound, seize the stockpiled weapons, and arrest Koresh. But someone had tipped Koresh off.
3: In the distance, Robert could see ATF vehicles making their way towards the compound. As they drew closer, Koresh ordered his followers to arm themselves.
1: Robert swallowed hard as Koresh's followers ran to the stockpile of guns and ammunition in the closet across the hall. His thoughts turned to the women and children asleep in the next room, soon to be caught in the crosshairs.
3: The ATF had planned an ambush. They were going to get a war. This is Hostage, a ParCast original. I'm Carter Roy. Every Thursday, we tell the stories behind the most captivating hostage situations and the people inside them.
1: And I'm Irma Blanco. We'll also cover the psychological tactics used in hostage negotiations and what the human brain does when held captive.
3: At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network.
1: And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you are listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to parcast.com merch for more information.
3: This is our first episode on the failed raid and ensuing standoff-turned-hostage crisis between American law enforcement agencies and cult leader David Koresh in Waco, Texas.
1: On February 28, 1993, following multiple firearms violations, the U.S. Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms attempted to execute an arrest warrant for cult leader David Koresh at his compound just outside Waco. The ATF planned to ambush the compound and arrest Koresh, but the cult leader got tipped off in time to arm himself and his followers. The result was a 51-day siege that left 76 dead, including unarmed women and children who were held hostage throughout the siege.
3: This week, we'll look at Koresh and his followers, the case built against him, and the tragic domino effect that led to the shootout, ceasefire, and extended standoff that played out on national television.
1: Next week, we'll follow the negotiations between the FBI and Koresh, the cult leader's engagement with the media, and the siege's explosive conclusion.
3: On today's episode of Hostage revolves around a cult, and who better to help us take a deep dive into the Branch Davidians than our friends Greg and Vanessa, hosts of podcast show Cults. They'll be joining us for these two episodes.
2: Hi, everyone. We're excited to return to David Koresh and the Branch Davidians.
3: It's a
0: fascinating story. Thanks for having us.
2: Thanks for joining us. Let's get started.
1: The compound, known as Mount Carmel, was the home of a doomsday cult led by failed musician-turned-prophet David Koresh. Koresh's followers had originally referred to themselves as the Branch Davidians, but by 1993, he had begun calling them... The Students of the Seven Seals, a reference to Koresh's belief that the apocalyptic events in the Book of Revelation would soon come to pass.
3: Around the same time, the ATF became aware of Koresh's massive stockpile of weapons, including 136 firearms, over 200,000 rounds of ammunition, and the materials to make at least 400 M31 rifle grenades— Additionally, the state of Texas had been investigating Koresh for the alleged physical and sexual abuse of the many children living on the compound.
1: They knew that Koresh's followers were prepared to both kill and die for him. What they didn't know was that Koresh had been preparing for the raid for over a year.
3: And in a way, Koresh had been preparing for the ensuing siege his entire life. He was a born master manipulator, And the infamous siege at Waco would prove that his control over his followers was absolute.
2: David Koresh was born Vernon Wayne Howell on August 17, 1959, in Houston, Texas. Vernon's mother, Bonnie Clark, was 14 years old when she gave birth to him. His biological father, 20-year-old Bobby Wayne Howell, left Bonnie for another teenage girl before Vernon was born.
0: Vernon's childhood was a rocky one. He was abused by his mother's string of boyfriends until he was four years old, when Bonnie sent him to live with his
3: grandmother. At some point, Bonnie came back for her son, but their relationship was damaged. However, they began to bond again, thanks to their shared Christian faith.
1: Vernon had always demonstrated an interest in the Bible, and while he struggled with dyslexia when reading other texts, he found he was able to find the spirit of the Bible, even if the written words came with great difficulty. By the age of 14, he had memorized the New Testament, and by 18, he had mastered the Old Testament as well. He would later tell
2: FBI negotiators that God had spoken to him as a child. Whether Vernon actually believed God had spoken to him is a complicated question. What's more likely is that, growing up in Texas, he was constantly exposed to the amount of influence and respect preachers had over their communities and wanted to be seen as equally infallible. So he became an expert preacher. He quickly demonstrated an ability to synthesize different parts of the scriptures and quote them at length. This had a dizzying effect on the listener and drew in followers who were convinced he spoke with the conviction of faith as opposed to the need for power. A classmate of his, Larry McDonald, said,
3: quote, Verne was kind of a quiet guy, but when he wanted to, he could turn it on as if stepping out on stage. The guy could be magnetic.
0: Though Koresh claimed he dropped out of ninth grade, Garland High School records show that he completed 10th grade and attended sporadically for the next two years before fully withdrawing in 1977. At age 18, he began to wander, living in a car, which he would later tell a friend was given to him by God.
1: Vernon eventually found some purpose in joining his mother Bonnie's seventh-day Adventist church in Tyler, Texas, but quickly found himself in conflict with the church's leadership. Church elder Lynn Ray said that he wanted to be a leader, demanded to be a leader.
3: Or at the very least, Vernon wanted control. He frequently cited scripture out of context to justify his personal interests, including arguing that God had promised the pastor's 15-year-old daughter to him because he had opened up to a Bible verse about marriage while thinking about her.
2: This wouldn't be the last time he used scripture to justify his sexual desires. But the Seventh-day Adventists were too established in their understanding of the text to accept his radical views and entitlement. They voted to expel Vernon from their ranks completely in 1981.
0: Vernon had worn out his welcome with one Christian sect, but he knew there were others that might have interest in a new prophet. He just needed to find the right flock. And his mother, Bonnie, told him she knew of one just
3: outside of Waco, Texas. The Branch Davidians were a splinter group of a splinter group, two steps removed from the Seventh-day Adventist Church, with over 20 million members around the world. The Branch Davidians were formed after the original Davidians came together on April 22, 1959, to await the second coming of Jesus Christ.
1: But after a failed apocalyptic prophecy caused a rift among the members, a Davidian named Benjamin Rodin led an ideological coup within the group,
2: forming the Branch Davidians. They lived in a complex made up of residential living facilities, administration buildings, and a media printing and distribution center just outside of Waco, Texas. They called their complex Mount Carmel, after a verse in the Old Testament's Book of Micah.
0: By the time 22-year-old Vernon Howell arrived at Mount Carmel in 1981, Branch Davidian founder Benjamin Roden had passed away, and his wife Lois had taken over the group, claiming
3: herself to be a vessel for the feminine Holy Spirit. Many former Branch Davidians described Vernon as boastful and even obnoxious when he first arrived, but he was soon struck with inspiration. He knew exactly how to take control
2: of this small religious sect. Almost overnight, he became charming and full of humility and invested wholeheartedly in Lois Rodin's concept of the feminine divine. Once Lois had expressed her public support for him, Vernon decided to test the waters. He told the Branch Davidians that he had been having visions from God. This put him in direct conflict with Lois Roden, but Vernon had a plan to handle that too.
1: At some point between 1981 and 1983, 22 year old Vernon began a sexual relationship with 67 year old Lois Roden. Lois's 34-year-old son, George, did not approve, but could do little to change her mind. Vernon had convinced her that one of his visions revealed that their union would result in the birth of a chosen one.
3: Granted, this was highly unlikely. Lois was far past standard menopause, but pregnancies among elderly women are a common trope in the Bible, so the Branch Davidians were somewhat receptive to the idea. Lois also began allowing Vernon to preach on his own, and
0: he quickly became her first lieutenant.
1: Which caused a further rift between Vernon and Lois's son George. George had always assumed he would inherit the seat of power from his mother when she was ready, but now he watched his mother grooming another man his own age.
0: Worse, George was forced to watch as his mother's followers began looking at Vernon with the reverence they had always reserved for Lois. They had never shown George the same respect. He lacked charisma. What's more, Vernon had that uncanny ability to quote the Bible and could preach circles around George.
2: Social psychologists Henry Tajfel and John Turner have suggested that members of a group who embody the beliefs, values, and norms of the group are more likely to emerge as group leaders. However, a leader can also emerge in an already established group by revealing the current leader's inability to embody the group's values. Vernon managed to do both, first by becoming Lois's disciple, then by pointing out her flaws. Vernon was able to talk biblical circles around the rodents, His gift for pulling exactly the right verse to make his self-serving point rarely steered him wrong, and he had a powerful and terrifying way of preaching, filled with vivid and violent imagery.
3: These sermons gave specificity to the horrors promised by the Book of Revelation. Vernon claimed that the faithful would be reborn to inherit the earth once it had been cleansed of non-believers. It became a popular message among his followers. If they surrendered their agency to God, God would take care of them for eternity.
1: Then, slowly over the course of 1983, Vernon began to imply that he was closer to understanding the Lord's will than Lois. Very few followers rebutted his authority, except for George Roden, who exploded. He threatened Vernon with the Uzi he carried while patrolling Mount Carmel.
3: The result was nothing short of disastrous. The other followers found George's behavior abhorrent. Slowly, the rodents' power eroded as more and more followers began to turn towards Vernon. It was time to strike.
2: In 1984, 25-year-old Vernon Howell abandoned his sexual partnership with Lois Roden and told the Branch Davidians that God had instructed him to marry Rachel Jones, a 14-year-old girl who had been raised within the group. These kinds of child marriages were by no means standard among the Branch Davidians. But Howell had earned what psychologist Edwin Hollander calls idiosyncrasy credits he had slowly convinced the group that he was an admirable leader and to give him the benefit of the doubt just this once. But with the right kind of charismatic leader, just this once becomes a habit.
3: Vernon began to overtly challenge Lois. The building that housed the printing press for the dissemination of her sermons mysteriously burned down. George Roden accused Vernon of setting the fire, but Perry Jones, one of Howell's spokesmen, told the Waco Tribune herald that the flames were the judgment of God.
1: George Roden finally ran Vernon Howell and his ardent followers off the Mount Carmel property
2: in 1985. Over the course of the next few weeks, Vernon set up an improvised commune about a hundred miles away in Palestine, Texas.
0: Commune is putting it kindly. It was a group of 8 x 12 plywood boxes, with no insulation and only small wood-burning stoves for heat. Although the meager accommodation did wonders to build Vernon's image as a pious leader.
1: But his followers quickly began to dwindle as they peeled off to rejoin the rodents. They might have preferred Vernon's
2: sermons, but the rodents had running water and heat. And while all good prophets spent at least some time in the desert, Vernon had promised his remaining followers that God would lead them home. Mount Carmel had been the Branch Davidians' home for over 30 years. What kind of prophet would he be if he couldn't reclaim their promised land?
0: And the time to reclaim said land was ripe. In November 1986, Lois Roden passed away. After George had threatened Vernon and his followers at gunpoint, many Branch Davidians left Mount Carmel, either for different sects of the Branch Davidians, or to follow Vernon. George was virtually
3: alone in Mount Carmel. Over the next two years, Vernon Howell and his followers tried to take over Mount Carmel through a legal loophole by paying back taxes on the property, but progress was slow. Then, in 1987, 28-year-old Vernon saw an opportunity to reclaim the Branch Davidians' home once and for all.
1: At the time, George had disinterred a deceased cult member, Anna Hughes, shortly after Lois Roden had died. George has since claimed that he was planning on moving the location of the Mount Carmel Cemetery and didn't see the point in burying
2: Anna just to exhume her a week later. Vernon, however, told his followers that George had challenged him to a duel of prophets. The man who could raise Anna from the dead was God's true mouthpiece. The other would leave Mount Carmel forever.
0: But Vernon's followers were so disturbed by the idea of Rodin interfering with their loved one's graves that they volunteered to join him on a night raid of the property. They wanted to obtain photographic evidence of any illegal activity on the property, including illegal
3: weapons and improper disposal of a body. This is where the story gets murky. Vernon claimed that when they arrived at Mount Carmel, the casket they wanted to photograph was gone, which caused them to spend their night searching the property for it. Then, they were surprised by George Roden and his Uzi at dawn. Roden, meanwhile, claimed that Vernon and his men infiltrated the property armed to the teeth in order to find and kill him.
1: We do know that when the sun rose on November 3rd, 1987, a shootout started. McLennan County deputies were called. When they arrived, they found Vernon and seven of his followers having pinned George Roden down behind a tree. The eight men were charged with the attempted murder of George Roden.
2: Coverage of the incident in the Waco Tribune Herald was overly sympathetic to Vernon. It's important to remember that Mount Carmel had been occupied by some version of the Davidians since 1935. Where we now see a cult, many citizens of Waco saw a group of sometimes strange, but ultimately harmless, fringe Christians.
3: At the time, the Waco Tribune Herald described Vernon and his followers as a down-and-out religious group fighting to take back their home and largely believed their version of events. But even still... It was hard to believe that Vernon's followers needed all the firepower they brought with them. When asked about the breadth of the weapons seized after the shootout, McLennan Deputy Sheriff Daniel Weinberg agreed it was overkill. He said, quote, I don't think you can take a patrol out in Vietnam with that much ammo. Nevertheless, Vernon's followers were found not guilty and Vernon
0: himself was freed after his case ended in a mistrial.
1: Only a few months later, in 1989, George Roden ended up in court again, this time as a defendant in an unrelated attempted murder case. And while George was sitting in jail awaiting trial, Mount Carmel was practically abandoned. Vernon and his followers seized the chance to move in and began renovating immediately.
0: The four-story, L-shaped complex had always looked more like a school than a home. There was a large kitchen and dining area, a computer lab, and a chapel, all on the first floor. Vernon took the bedroom just above the chapel on the second floor, which also held the Branch Davidian's quickly
3: growing armory. And with his new home, Vernon also decided to take on a new name, David Koresh. David was a reference to the Branch Davidians, and Koresh was the Hebrew name of King Cyrus of Persia, who conquered the Babylonian Empire in 539 BCE. It was a name for a prophet, a name meant to erase a past full of abuse and legal trouble. It also allowed him a new name to use when buying guns.
1: After the 1987 shootout, stockpiling arms had become one of Koresh's primary aims. When he took over the compound in 1989, he began stockpiling weapons at a notable rate. He refused to be run out of his home again.
2: From there, he only grew more fanatic. He referred to the outside world, particularly the U.S. government, as Babylon. Babylon, he said, would attempt to control and destroy them. By the early 1990s, he began to tell his followers that they needed to prepare for Babylon's assault on their home. The Branch Davidians ran shooting drills and built and maintained a guard tower on the property.
3: And while his followers trained for a skirmish with the U.S. government... Koresh got involved with questionable and often illegal behavior. He amped up his messianic rhetoric
0: and picked more wives from the group, including 20-year-old Dana Okimoto, 17-year-old Robin Buns, 16-year-old Nicole Gent, 14-year-old Karen Doyle, and 12-year-old Michelle Jones. He justified polygamy by saying that God had told him to grow the house of David Each of them would compete to be the true bride of God with the goal of giving him 24 children who would rule Israel as prophesied in the book of Revelation. Many of these women were related, sisters or even mothers and daughters.
2: There was no formal ceremony. Marriage into the house of David was complete after David Koresh's first sexual contact with a woman or girl. With many of his younger victims, their marriage to Koresh was concealed until she got pregnant. Koresh had at least 12 children, likely more, and many by underage girls. The cult tried to hide this fact by leaving the identity of the children's father blank on their birth certificates.
3: But statutory rape wasn't Koresh's only method for growing the population at Mount Carmel. Koresh began recruiting new members, spending time grooming them in places like California, Israel, the United Kingdom, and Australia.
2: Koresh would bring them to Waco slowly, after his lieutenants on the ground were sure a new follower was sufficiently brainwashed. In this way, he was able to maintain control over his growing flock even after they found out they'd be living in cramped quarters among child brides.
0: Before long, Koresh had convinced many international branch Davidians to continue living in the U.S. on expired visas, which isolated them from any legal help they could seek. This was one of Koresh's favorite recruiting strategies. American branch Davidians, if repulsed by his pedophilic practices, could leave but international followers were forced to live with Koresh on the compound or risk deportation and legal trouble.
1: But after Koresh revealed his new prophecy, they would soon regard Mount Carmel as the only safe place
2: on earth. In a moment, David Koresh reveals his grandest prophecy.
0: Now, back to the story.
3: On August 5, 1989, 29-year-old David Koresh received a prophecy from God. God told him that he was the lamb in the book of Revelation who would martyr himself to break the seven seals, which would bring about the end of the world. We've gone through this in more detail on cults,
0: but here's the quick version of the seals. Breaking each of the first four releases the horsemen of the apocalypse. Conquest, war, famine, and death. The fifth causes the cries of the martyrs to be heard on earth. The sixth brings about a cataclysm with earthquakes and falling stars.
2: Breaking the seventh seal brings on heralding angels, which wreak havoc on the earth. They would cleanse the earth of everyone but the Branch Davidians.
3: As the Lamb of God, Koresh had one other responsibility— He was forced to abolish his followers' marriages and take all the women into the house of David. The men would remain celibate, and he would endure the earthly sin of sleeping with their wives to grow the house of David.
1: For the first time, however, many of his followers balked and eventually left the compound. They were outraged at the thought of surrendering their partners to the house of David. But those who stayed prepared for a coming apocalypse.
0: Koresh didn't make any specific end of the world date predictions just yet. He knew enough about the history of the Davidians to know that a wrong prediction
3: could shatter his power. But two events at the start of 1992 set Koresh and the federal government on a fiery collision course, which would provide the doomsday violence Koresh had been prophesying for years. In late 1991, a Michigan resident named David Jewell got a call from a former Branch Davidian member named Mark Bro. Bro told him, quote, I have reason to believe your daughter is in
1: danger. David was divorced. His 10-year-old daughter, Kiri, was living at Mount Carmel with her mother, Sherry, for half the year. Kiri's mother,
2: Sherry, was David Koresh's 20th wife. That year, David Koresh assaulted Kiri, bringing her into the house of David. Sherry hadn't been fazed by this. Koresh was the most important person in her life, and she wanted him to be the most important person in Kiri's. Membership in the house of David meant she would be safe when the end came, ready to be reborn in paradise. But it was as clear to David as it is to us that
1: his child had been sexually abused and was in danger. Former cult members agreed to testify on Kiri's behalf in a Michigan family court, And on February 28, 1992, David Jewell worked out a custody deal with his ex-wife that removed Kiri from Koresha's reaches. Jewell was glad to have his daughter back, but he also felt a moral obligation to help the children still within the cult.
0: Texas Child Protective Services had already opened a case after Kiri was removed from the compound. But Jewel feared every moment that another child, another little girl, was in Mount Carmel. He wrote to his congressional representative, Fred Upton, on March 17, 1992. Upton sent the letter to his colleague, Chet Edwards, the Democratic representative for Waco's district. Edwards contacted the FBI.
3: But for whatever reason, the investigation quickly fell apart. The primary investigator on the case, Joyce Sparks, wanted to make a surprise visit to the compound in late February 1992. But she later accused McLennan County Sheriff Jack Harwell of deliberately undermining the investigation
2: by informing Koresh of her visit. Child abuse cases are notoriously difficult to prove, especially if there are no clear physical signs of assault. Showing up unannounced is often one of the best ways a CPS investigator can see the reality the child is living in.
0: Harwell says that he didn't call the compound personally, but someone in his office likely did, because he felt that Sparks heading up there unannounced would be dangerous. After all, Koresh had already been involved in one shootout on the compound. It was well known he was armed.
1: But unfortunately, the warning gave Koresh time to hide his pregnant, underage wives and his children by teenage mothers.
2: Joyce Sparks was disturbed by the air of wrath that seemed to radiate from Koresh, especially as she asked basic questions about how the children were being cared for. Sparks also found it unnerving to see how obedient the children were. To her, it was a clear pattern of abusive discipline.
3: She tried to interview one of Koresh's children, but had only barely started getting the kid to speak when the McLennan County deputies who'd escorted her to the compound interrupted, saying they needed to leave. Johnny Leendo, one of the
0: deputies there that day, later told the Waco Tribune-Herald that it was clear that Koresh's irritation was a security risk to both themselves and the social worker.
2: There were clear neglect issues, but none of the children indicated that they had been sexually assaulted or punished physically. Without an initial basis to justify more surprise visits, Sparks was forced to conduct the rest of her investigation with advance warning to the cult, which meant that she never met several of the compound's wives, including those who were underage and pregnant she'd found herself in a game of cat and mouse with a man who
1: seemed to have an almost supernatural ability to bend people to his will, including the local sheriff's department. Aside from preemptively pulling the plug on her initial visit, Sparks later told reporters that Koresh frequently referenced information that she'd disclosed only to local law enforcement as a means of intimidation. The sheriff's office denied the existence of a leak, but the ATF would also express concerns about the McLennan sheriff's
2: security during their investigation. In the end, Joyce Sparks was only able to interview 12 of the Branch Davidian children in total before her supervisors pulled the plug on the investigation. The case was closed in April of 1992.
0: Meanwhile, many former Branch Davidians were doing their best to stay in touch with their loved ones who had decided to stay in the cult, and they noted a new fatalism they hadn't heard in their families' voices before.
3: The former Branch Davidians reached out to Mark England, a reporter at the Waco Tribune Herald, saying they feared a potential mass suicide on Passover. England immediately reached out to the Davidians for a response. But Stephen Schneider, one of Koresh's main lieutenants, told the Tribune-Herald that the suggestion was hogwash.
1: But Mark England's interest was piqued. He interviewed more former Branch Davidians and began to see a fuller picture of the cult. What had looked like a fringe but ultimately harmless Christian sect was far more perverse than he'd ever imagined he enlisted the help of a novice reporter, Darlene McCormick, to continue the project, secretly working on the story for over eight months.
0: In October 1992, Darlene McCormick contacted Assistant U.S. Attorney Bill Johnston for a consult on federal weapons laws. Fishing, she suggested that a federal investigation of the Branch Davidians might already be in motion. Johnston dodged the question.
3: The Waco Tribune Herald planned a seven-part exposé on Koresh called The Sinful Messiah, a bombshell that would rock the town of Waco's relationship with the Branch Davidians. When they informed Johnston of their intention to publish the piece in December 1992, he asked them to hold, as the Branch Davidians were part of an active federal investigation.
1: The paper resisted, refusing to believe that the government was finally taking action after they dropped their investigation back in April.
0: The truth was that the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms had been investigating just as long as the Waco Tribune-Herald, and what they'd found was even more disturbing.
1: Back in February 1992, a UPS delivery man named Larry Gilbreth reached up to move a box bound for Mount Carmel. He frequently delivered to the compound, and Koresh often signed for the packages personally. As he brought the large box down,
2: six to ten hand grenades tumbled out. He leapt backward, slamming his back against the opposite wall so hard the truck shook. But as the seconds passed, he finally got the nerve to look down again. They were casings, only casings. They needed powder to be active. But then, Larry took a mental inventory of the packages he'd delivered to Mount Carmel over the past few months. Lately, they had grown larger and larger. He wondered if he had been delivering guns to the compound. He called the McLennan County Sheriff's Department, who contacted the Austin branch of the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms.
3: ATF Special Agent Davy Aguilera opened a full investigation into Koresh's potential stockpiling. As he tracked through the Branch Davidian's UPS receipts, he found that none of the Colt's weapons were registered within federal government regulations. They also discovered that Koresh was buying equipment that would allow him to convert semi automatic rifles into unregistered machine guns.
2: He presented his findings to his superior officer, Philip Winoski, who gave him permission to open an ATF sensitive case. Sensitive cases require more oversight, as they're centered around volatile groups or individuals where the subject of the investigation has access to large quantities of weapons or explosives.
1: One of Koresh's primary resources for weapons was arms dealer Henry McMahon. When Special Agent Aguilera and an ATF compliance officer, Jimmy Ray Skinner, examined his records, they found multiple items missing from McMahon's recorded inventory, which immediately put him out of compliance. McMahon told the agents that the missing guns were being stored at his preacher David Koresh's home.
0: Aguilera and Skinner didn't want to arouse suspicion among the Branch Davidians. So they let McMahon off with a warning and a promise to return in a month. When they followed up, McMahon gave Skinner a receipt for the missing items. Vernon Howell was listed as the buyer. The receipt gave the weapons at Mount Carmel a semi-defensible paper trail and made the purchases look legal.
2: But they weren't. Purchasing a firearm while misrepresenting the person who will ultimately possess it is called straw purchasing, and it's a major firearms violation. It obscures who's going to be using the weapon and for what purpose.
3: In addition, interviews with neighbors and the sheriff's department confirmed that gunshots were regularly heard on the Mount Carmel property, including reports of what sounded like automatic gunfire. The ATF was now beginning to see the Branch Davidians as a real growing threat. Agent Davy Aguilera began speaking with the former Branch
0: Davidians, who had initially sounded the alarm about Koresh. Janine Buns and her daughter Robin, who had both been wives of Koresh, confirmed that there were multiple weapons on the Mount Carmel property, and that members of the group frequently ran shooting drills. They warned that the compound was always armed and on guard for potential threats.
1: Another former member corroborated this account, adding that there were shoot-to-kill orders for any trespassers on the property. Janine even said that Koresh had a list of former group members that he wanted to eliminate and had asked Janine if she would, quote, kill her children if God asked her to do so.
3: The former cult members also reported incidents of physical and sexual abuse against children within the compound. Disturbed at this turn in the case, Aguilera contacted the Texas Department of Protective and Regulatory Services, who put him in touch with Joyce Sparks. Sparks briefed him on the
0: difficulties she'd had with both the cult and the sheriff's department. She said one of the seven-year-old Branch Davidians had told her the men completed shooting drills regularly.
2: Former Branch Davidian, Daniel Bloch, reported that weapons were being manufactured on the property and that they had visits from amateur explosive experts. Koresh knew his activities were illegal by the laws of Babylon, and he was resolved to never submit to them again. Several former members told Aguilera
1: that if there was a siege on the compound, Koresh might instruct his followers to commit suicide. This was further corroborated by a statement from Kiri Jewell, who said that the children at Mount Carmel had been taught multiple ways of ending their own lives.
3: In November 1992, Assistant U.S. Attorney Johnston reviewed Special Agent Aguilera's findings and found enough evidence to support probable cause for a search warrant.
2: It should be noted here that the ATF warrant focused exclusively on the Branch Davidians' large stockpile of firearms and their apparent interest in manufacturing munitions. The safety of the children at Mount Carmel was the highest priority of the ATF, but their legal reason for being there had nothing to do with the potential abuse of said children.
0: ATF Assistant Special Agent in Charge Chuck Sarabin authorized his division to begin planning for how to safely execute the warrant against a well-armed and potentially well-trained group. They were holed up on a massive and remote plot of land, had supplies for an extended siege, and potential child hostages. Under the best circumstances, a shootout was likely.
1: Serebin knew their only asset was the element of surprise. Of course. David Koresh was a man with a few surprises of his own.
0: In a moment, the ATF plans a surprise raid, and Koresh plans a surprise of his own.
1: Now, back to the story.
3: On January 11, 1993, the ATF set up an undercover operation in a safe house just opposite the Branch Davidian's Mount Carmel compound. Special Agent Robert Rodriguez sought out cult leader David Koresh under the false pretense of buying some equine equipment from the compound. He was quickly invited to attend Koresh's Bible study group.
2: Then, Rodriguez went to work further embedding himself in the compound. He set up an impromptu shooting range near the undercover house. Koresh noticed and invited him to join the weapons drills at Mount Carmel. Thus began a careful game of cat and mouse. Rodriguez attended Bible study, sometimes multiple times a day, but avoided any commitment to move into the compound. But Rodriguez and his fellow
1: surveillance agents weren't the only undercover operatives the ATF used to investigate Koresh. Larry Gilbreth, the UPS driver, agreed to take a disguised ATF agent with him for a delivery at the compound.
0: As David Koresh signed for the delivery, the agent scanned the property. He noted a group of men working in a nearby pit, swinging pickaxes, One gave Gilbreth a little nod of acknowledgement before returning to his work. The agent also watched angelic blonde toddlers playing with women who looked
2: far too young to be mothers. Just as they were about to leave, Koresh raised his eyes to meet Larry's. He said, Larry, I know they're watching us. Larry felt his body go numb.
1: He began to sweat,
3: wondering if Koresh knew the man beside him was a government official if he would kill them on the spot.
1: But after a long, poignant pause,
2: Koresh walked away. After that, planning for the raid went into full swing.
3: Only one of the ATF agents planning the raid had dealt with a high-risk situation like Mount Carmel. William Buford had been part of the team that executed a warrant in 1985 for a group of white supremacists called the Covenant, the Sword and the Arm of the Lord, or the CSA. The group had surrounded their
0: 360-acre Arkansas compound with landmines and concealed bunkers. The siege led to a three-day long negotiation between the CSA and the ATF and FBI. The supremacist group came out peacefully but not before destroying most of the evidence against them.
1: But Assistant U.S. Attorney Johnston told the ATF that he would not okay an approach like the one used in Arkansas because he feared the cult members would destroy the evidence before surrendering, just
2: like the CSA had. The other concerns were the reports from both the McLennan County Sheriff's Office and the former Branch Davidians that suggested that Koresh had prepared his followers for a potential mass suicide if they felt truly cornered. The 1978 Jonestown massacre had proved that a charismatic leader could convince his followers to kill their children and themselves. The ATF couldn't risk that. The ATF tactical planners
1: investigated the siege option in order to cover their bases and prepare for the worst possible outcome. But there was next to no cover between the road and the Mount Carmel compound, just an empty field. If things went south, or if the Branch Davidians knew they were coming, the ATF agents would only have the cover they brought with them.
3: The tactical planners already knew from social worker Joyce Sparks' tours of Mount Carmel that the compound had enough food and water stored to last them months. The plan was to draw Koresh away from the compound under false pretenses before the breach. They would stage an off-site meeting about the child abuse charges or possibly stage a vehicular accident.
2: But former cult member Daniel Block told Aguilera that Koresh didn't keep a strict schedule and refused to leave the premises because he feared being arrested. Even if he were to leave, his foot soldiers were armed and willing to defend the compound. One of the important
0: things to remember here is that a lot of the intelligence the ATF was using about the workings of the compound was from former members of the cult, some of which had been out for over a year, Knowing they might be using dated information, the ATF tactical planners leaned heavily on Robert Rodriguez to fill in the blanks. But he wasn't
3: able to wander Mount Carmel freely without arousing suspicion. And due to those limitations, gaps in information began to grow. Former cult members swore that Koresh had guards at the compound 24-7, but Rodriguez and his team never observed anyone in the guard tower. Rodriguez did note, however, that the Branch
0: Davidian men often worked in a construction pit away from the second floor armory, starting daily around 10 a.m.
1: This report encouraged Buford and the planners to plan a dynamic entry, essentially raiding the compound before the Branch Davidian men working outside could reach the weapons on the second floor. Their hope was that by raiding the compound, they could prevent a siege.
3: A siege was the ATF's absolute worst nightmare due to its potential risks to both the civilians inside the compound and the agents themselves.
2: On February 11th, the plans for the raid were submitted to the federal ATF office. Rather than following the normal timeline for a raid of starting at dawn, the teams would make their way towards the property in pickup trucks and cattle trailers at 10 a.m., hoping to blend in as ranch traffic on the usually empty Texas roads. Shortly after the
1: cattle trailers had made it to the perimeter of the compound, helicopters would fly over the area as a distraction. The agents would disembark from the trailer, setting up a perimeter, and leaving six agents stationed to defend the perimeter if needed.
3: The planners divided the steps of the raid between three teams, New Orleans, Dallas, and Houston. The New Orleans team would be tasked with scaling the compound's roof in order to breach the weapons room through two separate windows.
2: The Dallas team and half of the Houston team would enter through the front door and secure the first, second, and third floors before proceeding on to the buried school bus the Branch Davidians used as a bunker. The second half of the Houston team would move over to the construction pit, subdue the men there, and breach the buried bus. All the agents, aside from the east side of Team New Orleans,
1: would have snipers providing cover as they reached their points of entry. This would leave half of the New Orleans team scaling the wall of Mount Carmel with no suppressing fire.
0: Buford, having had experience during the CSA raid in 1985, would be part of that team. His friend and fellow planner, Kenny King, would lead Team New Orleans from the other side. Scaling the building with ladders as quickly and quietly as possible would be difficult. But as long as they had the element
3: of surprise, it seemed doable. But the element of surprise was already slipping from their grasp.
2: The Waco Tribune-Herald was wrapping up its investigation into David Koresh and were ready to print a series of articles in early 1993. ATF Special Agent Wanoski had
1: a series of meetings with the Waco Tribune Herald's editors to discuss holding the Sinful Messiah series until the ATF could finish a secret operation. He expressed his concern that the publication might put Koresh on high alert, endangering both law enforcement and the people inside the compound.
3: The Waco Tribune-Herald, however, felt that Special Agent Winoski didn't provide any compelling evidence for why the story should be delayed. Editor Robert Lott said, quote, The important thing to us is the public's right to have information that they need to know, and that's our job. We are not concerned about where it falls in terms of your law enforcement case.
1: Special Agent Wanoski asked them to hold off until after the raid on March 1st. He even offered to let them send reporters as ride-alongs in bulletproof
2: vests. The Herald told him they would consider it and get back to him. So far, law enforcement had failed in its investigation into child abuse on the compound and had seemingly done nothing about reports of weapons being stockpiled at Mount Carmel. So when the ATF asked for the paper's patience with the ongoing investigation, the editorial staff believed it was just another stall, even though they'd been given a date for likely police action. On
3: February 25th, the ATF received warrants to search the compound and arrest David Koresh for the possession of illegal firearms and destructive devices. They had initially planned the raid for Monday, March 1st, but Winovsky urged his superiors to move up the raid as soon as possible. He had a strong suspicion that the Waco Tribune-Herald would publish the story over the weekend.
0: And sure enough, the Herald published The Sinful Messiah, Part 1, on Saturday, February 27th, complete with the headline, The Law Watches But Has Done Little.
2: The ATF panicked. They couldn't mobilize until Sunday, February 28th they contacted Special Agent Rodriguez and asked him to take the temperature at the compound on the morning of the 27th. Had the article put Koresh on high alert? Rodriguez confirmed
1: that there were no changes to the schedule, but Koresh did give a sermon about the article, saying that outsiders were coming for him. Rodriguez's superiors told him to return the next day, the 28th, but to be out of the complex by 9.15 a.m., as the raid would occur at 10. Special Agent Rodriguez grew worried that Koresh might notice he was dropping by unannounced and grow suspicious, but he followed orders.
3: The morning of the raid all seemed quiet at Mount Carmel, that is, until just before 10 when officers noticed a rush of media vehicles appearing around the compound.
2: Then, an undercover agent witnessed an interaction between a television cameraman and a local mailman, David Jones. The reporter asked for directions to the Mount Carmel compound, mentioning the raid. Jones happily gave him directions and set off.
0: What the reporter didn't know was that David Jones was one of Koresh's many brothers-in-law. He began racing back towards the compound to tip off the Branch Davidians.
1: As Rodriguez sat in on a Sunday morning Bible study, David Jones's father, Perry, rushed into the Branch Davidians' chapel. He told Koresh he had a phone call.
0: Koresh raised his eyebrow. Who would interrupt Bible study for a phone call? But as Perry loomed in the doorway, Koresh realized the gravity of the situation. He
2: excused himself. Outside the chapel, David Jones told Koresh about the raid the reporter had mentioned.
1: Meanwhile, Rodriguez sat in the chapel, fighting the urge to jump out of the window and run.
3: When Koresh came back into the room, flustered, he said, "'They're coming, Robert, the time has come.' Then Koresh became eerily calm and said, "'Good luck, Robert.'
2: Rodriguez ran out of the compound and back to the undercover house. He called command to let them know that Koresh had been tipped off. The agent on the other line asked, Did you see anyone preparing to defend the compound?
0: Rodriguez answered honestly, no.
3: When he left, they were praying. Before Rodriguez could clarify, the agent hung up. ATF Assistant Special Agent in Charge, Chuck Sarabin, felt they could still go through with the raid if they got into position immediately.
1: But Rodriguez knew they would be walking into a trap. He nearly threw himself into his truck at the undercover house, tires screeching as he barreled towards the command center, which was set up nearly 10 miles away at
2: Texas State Technical College. He needed to stop the raid. But by the time he arrived at command, the ATF trucks and trailers were already crossing onto the Mount Carmel property, driving down the long, long driveway towards the compound.
0: There was silence in the command post as the radios went dark. Rodriguez retreated to the quiet of the stairwell outside the situation room. He sank to the floor and started crying.
1: Just as Rodriguez suspected, right after he left, most of the Branch Davidian men and one woman, a former police officer, grabbed weapons and homemade protective vests before taking up positions at windows that faced the outer walls of the compound.
3: Nevertheless, Bill Buford told his team, quote, We got nothing to do but go ahead and run the plan just
2: the way we're going to run it. He knew they could be walking straight into an ambush, but that didn't matter. Now that Koresh knew they were coming for him, it would always be an ambush. Teams Dallas, Houston, and New
1: Orleans rocked softly in the trailers as they turned into the compound's driveway. A crackle came over the radio.
0: There's no one outside, one of the agents in the first trailer said. That's not good, said another. Then more trouble. The commanders had given the distraction helicopters a go, but they didn't arrive until the same moment the trailers reached the compound. The helicopters took fire from the upper windows and were forced to retreat, but the trailers were out in the open, unable to turn around. The only way to safety was forward. They would escape the gunfire by stopping whoever was inside firing.
2: The Dallas and Houston teams spilled from their trailers and opened the front gate, What happened next is still a point of contention. Both groups agree that Koresh stood at the front door, asking what was happening. Koresh claims that the ATF immediately began to fire on him. The agents say they yelled they had a warrant and ordered Koresh to freeze, but he shut the door as they rushed towards him.
3: Gunfire burst through the door from the inside, so forceful that the wood swelled on its hinges. Bullets rained down on the ATF agents from every window at the front of the compound. Still, up the agents went, as
0: ladders slammed against the sides of the building. Agent Glenn Jordan broke the glass of the second floor window, as Agent Buford threw a flashbang into the breached room. Buford, Jordan, and Agent Keith Constantino made it through the window, where they were immediately hit by automatic gunfire.
2: Team New Orleans didn't have automatic weapons. They were using tactical firearms, which were much more appropriate for a situation where a child might dash across the hallway during a gunfight. But it did not make for an even match against the well-armed Branch Davidians, who were able to spray larger caliber bullets at a faster, if less controlled, rate.
3: The spray of the Branch Davidians' automatics pierced the exterior wall of the compound from inside the room the ATF had just entered, hitting the other member of the East Side New Orleans team, who was still outside. Constantino provided cover fire as Buford and Jordan, now both seriously wounded, dove out of the window and onto the ground. Constantino was trying to decide
0: whether he should continue towards the armory or turn back when a cult member began firing at him. He ran for the window, accidentally slamming his head on the frame as he cleared it. The hit knocked his helmet off, dazed his weapon slipped from his grip, and he rolled off the roof, breaking his leg and hip as he hit the
2: ground. Some of his fellow agents, who had taken cover behind low walls and vehicles, risked their lives to pull Constantino and the rest of Buford's team behind cover but they were still pinned down by enemy fire
1: from all sides of the compound and team new orleans western commander buford's friend kenny king was flat on the ground on the compound's western side shot six times and unable to move he asked for help on his radio But the gunfire from the compound was too intense for the agents to move without being hit. The agents were
3: forced to listen as their commander pled for his life on the radio for over an hour and a half before the McLennan sheriffs were able to negotiate a ceasefire. Miraculously, King lived.
2: The ATF agents staggered away from the compound, carrying wounded comrades, in a now iconic piece of news footage, Bill Buford was carried away from Mount Carmel on the hood of a truck, and improvised gurney on an unexpected battlefield.
0: The ATF's greatest fear had come true. Four agents killed and 28 wounded, six Davidians dead, 45 children under the age of 15 still inside, held hostage behind a wall of guns, still ready to fire. The siege
3: had begun. Next week, we'll explore the contradictory methods the FBI used in their attempt to convince David Koresh to lead his followers and their children out of the Mount Carmel compound.
1: A hostage negotiation is based on exchange, which in and of itself was the problem. What did David Koresh want that the negotiators could actually provide? To quote FBI Special Agent Byron Sage, How do you negotiate with God?
3: Thanks again for tuning in to Hostage. We will be back Thursday with part two.
2: And thanks to Greg and Vanessa for joining us this week. Thanks for having us. If you enjoyed this episode, you might also enjoy the episodes of cults covering David Koresh and the Church of the Seven Seals.
0: In our coverage, we went deep into Koresh's life
3: as a cult leader, his twisted mindset, and the splinter sect in Waco. Those episodes are fascinating, and we're looking forward to more of your insight next week.
1: You can find more episodes of Hostage, Cults, and all of Parcast's other shows on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts.
3: Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review.
1: And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time.
3: In the meantime, don't take your freedom for granted. Hostage and Cults were created by Max Cutler, are a production of Cutler Media, and are part of the ParCast Network. They are produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Liebeskind. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. This episode is written by Lil DeRitter and Jennifer Richet, and stars Irma Blanco, Carter Roy, Greg Paulson, and Vanessa Richardson.